reading is in three parts. First of all, Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And then moving to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first half of chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And then moving to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, the second half of chapter 9, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever." Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform 
is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for, your, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Nice to see you. And I just wanted to say before we crack into the subject today that I'm sure that uh, on all of our hearts today is the whole situation in Ukraine. And... Um, It's been good to pray for it already. But on Wednesday this week, we will open the church um, three different times. So if you want to come and pray, um, you may do so. Uh, Eight o'clock in the morning, 12.30, around lunchtime, and eight o'clock in the evening. Just short time, half an hour. And if you'd like to come and um, pray together, I'm sure it'd be a very, very good thing to do. Well, let's pray now that God would speak to us Uh, through this sermon, through his word. Would you join me in praying? Father God, thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that as we look at them together, you might soften our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And you might uh, lead us into your ways and your truth. Help me as I speak. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But if you've been coming week by week in the mornings, you'll know that we've been studying what's called the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. They're all statements that begin, blessed are the. And today, rather sneakily, we're going to look at a hidden Beatitude. It's in the book of Acts, and it's a saying of Jesus. So it's, it's another blessing saying. And it goes like this. You had it read. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And it's opportune for me to be talking about this subject this morning because in the back of my mind, perhaps slightly nearer the front of my mind than the back, is that in a fortnight's time, we we have Commitment Sunday here. And there's some literature about that, which is online. And if you don't do online, there's some hard copies over there you could take. And basically, once a year, we as a family of St. Michael's, we commit to three things. We review where we are with God. We do that to make sure we don't just kind of slide and slip and grow cold. And if we want to, you commit yourself to following Christ in the coming year. And secondly, you review what you're going to do to bless the family of God at St. Michael's. Are you going to commit to worshipping here? And if so, you tick that box too. And then thirdly, arising out of that, altogether logical, is, okay, so part of my worship, part of my, what it means to follow Jesus at St. Michael's will be, so how am I going to contribute financially as part of my worship? And so this talk definitely does have that in the back of my mind. Now, I know, having sat through lots of talks about giving and stewardship, just like you, that uh, at this point, when you realise what the subject is, it's almost like the air stewardess has come at the front and said, brace, brace, adopt the brace position. And I want to say you don't need to do that. Uh, Jesus' teaching on this subject is every bit as liberating 
life-giving, perfect, as it is in any other subject. Personally, I avoided this whole topic of stewardship and giving for years and years. And I didn't like to talk about it for years. And the reason was I carried with me this kind of deficit impression that when you go to church, what they're after is your money. And the moment someone starts talking at the front about money, I would go into defensive mode. And so actually I kept this off my preaching agenda for ages and ages. Until I woke up and realised that Jesus does exactly the opposite. That he didn't shy away from talking about stewardship, handling money. He talks about it so much. And there's a reason why he does that. And it's because basically he recognised that there's competition going on in our lives between whether we choose to worship him or money. And he says, you can't do both. And money masquerades as being able to offer us exactly what only God can do. Money can offer you significance, but God ultimately is where you get significance from. Money seems to suggest you have value, but God's love is what actually gives you value. Money seems to suggest you have enough money, you will be satisfied, but actually only in relation to God will you be satisfied. So this whole area of stewardship is much more, much, much more than, um, well, we need some money to run a church. It's more to do with the whole of your spiritual health. And I want to start with a very, very simple point. I'm going to read you um, extracts from two obituaries, and I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, which of these two characters do you think lived a more joy-filled life? Okay? It's, It's not a trick. That's the only thing. They're not examples of anything else. It's just just a very simple question. So here's the first one. The heading of this guy's obituary was this. Forrest Mars, who has died aged 95, developed the chocolate bar that bears his name and established one of America's richest dynasties. He was a secretive, penny-pinching, foul-tempered bully, but his monstrous character proved no obstacle to his building up the family fortune estimated at 12.5 billion pounds. Forrest Mars and his three children were reckoned the eighth richest family in the world. He was notorious for his frugality, his obsessive attention to detail, his vicious temper, and his merciless capacity to humiliate any Mars employee, including his own children who displeased him. Hmm, nice. Or this person, Larry Stewart, April the 1st, 1948 to January the 12th, 2007. For the best part of 26 years, the millionaire Larry Stewart spent each Christmas roaming the streets of Kansas City giving out money to the homeless. Over that period, he gave a total of 1.3 million. Stewart's identity only became known two months ago when he revealed himself to be the Kansas City's secret Santa, a figure whose real identity have mystified journalists and civic authorities for years? Well, I don't think it's a difficult um, question, really. Which of those two do you think enjoyed life the more? And I I mention that just because it helps us get in the right frame of mind that actually we appreciate generosity. We like it in other people. No one will ever come up to you and say, you know, the thing I hold against you is you're too generous. 
And, and we actually, when we engage in it ourselves, we know the joy that comes with it. If you think of the New Testament and you think of cherry-pick which events you'd like to most like to have been at, a lot of them have generosity at the heart of them, don't they? Say the wedding reception at Cana, water into wine moment, or the feeding of the 5,000, or the parties mentioned in the story of the prodigal son or Zacchaeus coming down his tree. Generosity isn't something that we need to adopt the brace position in order to avoid. As, as Jesus said, it's a blessing when we buy into it. None of us are going to mind being remembered for our generosity, are we? Specifically, our generosity in support of God's work. But none of us, I would suggest, wants an obituary like the obituary that Jesus gives the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. When he tells the story of a man who's richer and richer, do you remember, built more and more barns? And he says, God said to him, you fool, tonight your life is demanded of you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but isn't rich towards God. Now, as I say, Jesus isn't reticent when talking about money and stewardship and giving, and nor is Paul. And if, if the chances are, if you've been a follower of Christ any length of time and you've been to church over any period of time, you will have heard many people fall on this passages from 2 Corinthians 8, because it is the longest text, if you like, chunk of text, dealing with this whole topic. And yet even as I reviewed the passage again and again and prepared this sermon, I saw that what Paul has to say is from first to finish, a tale of the unexpected. And as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians, let's view it like that. And the first thing that's unexpected is that he should be talking about the Macedonians at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. They, the Macedonians, he says, didn't do as we, that's Paul, expected. Now, why is it a surprise that he talks about them? Well, they're dirt poor. They, they, they hardly had two beans to rub together. And secondly, as he, as he says, um, what they did took him by surprise. It was unexpected that they should be generous, but they were. And Paul says they didn't do as we expected. And lots of church treasurers in the different churches that I've been in and served in over the years have echoed this to me. They've come into my study, more than one of them, and said, Rupert, don't guess who gives what to this church, because you'll guess wrong. You can't predict. Paul would never have guessed out of all the churches that Macedonia would have been the pin-up church. And here's, here's what's at its core and why it's so counterintuitive and why it's unexpected. Generosity towards God is more to do with God's grace than to do with your genes or the size of our wallets. And Paul is very, very insightful here, and he puts his finger on an absolute key truth, a liberating truth. It's God's grace in our lives, God's love in our hearts, at work in us, 
that enables us to be or become generous people. There was no other way of accounting for or explaining the, the huge generosity of this group of believers in Macedonia. Paul says, out of the most severe trial and extreme poverty, they exceeded our expectations. And then he says, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then to us. And I sort of need to stop at this point in this talk and say, this talk is not going to make sense to you if you're not already a follower of Christ. You can't behave in the way that Jesus suggests and Paul suggests we should behave without the Holy Spirit's help. You know, we, we all know about how the world gets money out of people. It kind of arm twists you behind your back until you feel you absolutely have got to part with your hard-earned cash. They make you feel guilty or, or kind of duffed up, put you in a corner where it's embarrassing. Paul doesn't do any of that. That's not his way. But everything I'm about to say, reflecting everything that Paul says, it, it, it relies on the Holy Spirit. It relies on a work of grace in our lives. I, I wouldn't ask unbelievers to go down the road that I'm about to go down in this talk, and nor does Jesus, really. It's the grace of God that opens our hearts and our fists and our wallets. If you've ever had the experience of worshipping in, let's say, Africa, I remember going on a trip actually from this church in the mid-1980s off to Uganda, just after Armin had been deposed of heading up that country, and it was absolutely dirt poor. And being overwhelmed, me and the little group that went from St. Michael's, just three of us, overwhelmed by the generosity of a people who shared out of really what they didn't have. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the second surprise in, in here is not just that he picked the Macedonians, that you see in verse 9, if you're following it, it, it's not a grudge match, it's a grace match. When it comes to giving, it's not a grudge match, it's a grace match. And, and again, another surprise, it isn't painful. It's a privilege. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Wow, that, that's quite something. They didn't want to be left out. They didn't want to be denied the chance. And when you see this in others and you see it in scripture and maybe you experience it yourself, it is a privilege. You know, early on in the book of Acts, you read that this fellow Barnabas, he went and sold a field and he laid it at the disciples' feet. And he said, there you are, the proceeds are yours. Now, he's gone down, do you think, in history as someone who was conned? You know, poor investment Barnabas, sucker, you just said goodbye to a field. No, absolutely not. We, we look back over our shoulder and we say, the church of God owes Barnabas. We're in his debt, in a way, in a manner of speaking. They saw it as a privilege to provide, and they weren't wrong, were they? And um, I think I experienced a change of attitude. What helped me along this road was a rather tough letter, which I'm going to read out to you. Um, I received just a letter through the post from an organization which was trying to raise money. And when I first read it, I, well, I, I was stopped in my tracks. And I'm going to read it to you because I find it quite helpful, actually, on reflection. This is how it goes. On July the 23rd, 1970, my wife, Connie, gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, 
our joy was great. We tried for three years to start a family, and I remember waiting in the hallway outside the delivery room. At precisely 4.13 p.m., I heard a sound I'll never forget, Lance's first cry. I could hardly wait to hold him in my arms. The wonderful glow of father, fatherhood dimmed soon when I was asked to visit the hospital's business office. This takes place in America. They wanted me to pay for Lance, and I wrote out the cheque, paying all the expenses in full, freed my family, and we made our escape. And that cheque turned out to be the only, the first one of hundreds, maybe thousands, that I would write on behalf of Lance. Children are expensive. Clothes, toys, growing out of them. And then disaster struck. Lance became a teenager. And now it was designer clothes and dates. And then came college. Lance had always wanted to be an architect. And it seemed to me that he would be in school until he was 42 years old. Expenses soared, but of course we were happy to be able to help him and we did all we could to support his growth and his dreams. And then one day Lance died. On Halloween day, 1991, we buried 21-year-old Lance in our church's cemetery. And that afternoon we walked away from his grave and since that day we've never spent another nickel on Lance. And that's how I learnt it. Death is cheap. Death can be sustained without expense. It's living that's costly. It's growth that's expensive. Our dreams, visions and hopes require sacrifices. Death requires nothing. And that's why I'll never join a church that doesn't need money. A living, growing, thriving church will always require the continual, consistent and conscientious financial support of all its members. And that's right, isn't it? That's right when you think about it. And I, I can look back and remember going to Oxford to study and train to be a vicar and walking into this church um, and they were just concluding a building project and this was in 1982. And um, I couldn't believe it in a way when in the passage of time in 2002, I went back to that church to serve as a curate and blow me down, they were doing another building project. And I thought, oh my goodness, didn't they ever stop? making demands on the congregation for this, that, and the other. And then I realized, no, of course it won't stop. Because every time God grows his kingdom, there's a need for support. And that's how it's meant to be. Whatever generation it is that we work in, we're meant to provide and provide blessing for the people who don't even belong to the church yet. But the point is from this passage, and the point I'm trying to share with you, is it's not a pain, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be part of this. And of course, in the cracks of the New Testament, you, you just glimpse the people that bankrolled Jesus' ministry, don't you? A group of women that are mentioned in Luke's Gospel, that out of their own means, they supported Jesus. Well, how amazing to be remembered for that. And then here's the next surprise. Generous giving and generosity itself isn't marginal, in Christ's life. It's mainstream. And it's not marginal for your life and mine. It's mainstream. In fact, it struck me. If you and I took out a pencil and you started crossing out every part of the New Testament that has to do with generosity, God's generosity towards you and me, there wouldn't be much left. Every miracle 
is a free gift of grace, isn't it? No one deserves it, God gives it. So out goes all the miracles. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, no one paid for it, as far as I know. It was a free gift, so out goes the Sermon on the Mount. Um, every changed life for good, out it goes, because it's a free gift. It's right at the heart of the gospel. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. So actually, you've you pretty much ripped up the whole of the New Testament if you pull out generosity, which is just to say, if Christ was like that, so for us, it's a pattern of life. To be near a Christian, in a way, is to prove there is such a thing as a free lunch. Jesus gives you something you'll never pay back for. His forgiveness, his new life. And then the next surprise, who gets the most benefit from giving, the donor or the receiver? Well, I think I've pretty made that point. Okay, so far, so good. But here's, here's the crunch point, really. This is where the rubber hits the road. Generosity starts with a decision, not a feeling. Generosity starts with a decision, not a feeling. It's an acquired skill, but it takes action. Someone has said that most of the Christian life, it's easier to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. And I think that's very true. Let me explain what I mean. It, it's obedience that comes first and the feeling that comes second. If you wait till you feel like giving, you'll probably never get around to it. If you wait till you feel like forgiving, you'll never get around to it. If you wait till you feel like praying, you'll hardly ever do it. If you wait till you feel like reading the scriptures, you probably won't do it. If you wait till you feel like coming to church to worship, if that's the basis of when you dip up to St. Michael's, we won't see you very often. And if I only came to church when I felt like it, you'd never see me. It, 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 it's, it's because that's how the Christian life works. It, it's obedience. It, it's taking a step of obedience and then discovering it's true. And the whole of this talk will be in a complete waste of time if you go home and I go home and we don't ever get to that place of obedience. And it, it's tucked into this passage on giving. Paul says that the people who receive the money from Macedonia would thank God for their obedience. It starts with a decision. And so what motivates us is, well, I've already talked about it, the example of grace of Jesus himself. But not just the example of God's grace, your experience of God's grace in your life. You know, there's quite an instructive little follow-up to that second chap whose obituary I read out, the one who dressed up as Santa Claus. And I'm just going to read it to you. One day in the winter of 1971, Stuart had a life-changing moment. He'd been working as a door-to-door -door salesman in Houston, Missouri. But when the company failed, he soon found himself penniless. He hadn't eaten for two days and he walked into a diner and ordered breakfast. And having consumed it, he pretended to have lost his wallet. With Stuart protesting, the owner of the diner, Ted Horn, approached him and handed him a $20 bill. Son, you must have dropped this, he said. Relieved, Stuart paid, left a tip and thanked God. 
And it was only when he was driving out of town that it dawned on him that no one had dropped $20 and that the kind owner was merely trying to spare him embarrassment. Right then, I just made a promise, Stuart recalled. I said, Lord, if you ever put me in a position to help other people, I will do it. And you know, it's like we have received God's love and kindness to us when we were bankrupt. And now we have received it. We need to share it and help others. We need, if we're going to follow Christ, to turn to scriptures and do what it says. And scripture makes no secret of the fact that as followers of God, we owe him. And if you want me to be even more specific, um, the figure that's mentioned in the Old Testament is the whole concept of a tithe, of giving one-tenth of what we have, of what we earn, back and bringing it to God's storehouse. That would be, in my interpretation, your main place of spiritual worship. There is only one place in Scripture, so far as I know, where we're told we can put God to the test, where actually God tells us to put him to the test. And it's in a little verse tucked away in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where Malachi writes, Bring a full tithe into the storehouse and test me in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing into your life. I don't think he means that, that if, you, if you give a figure of X, you get twice X back the next week. But I think there is a principle here. And it's a principle to hold in alongside the other things that Paul says about our giving. And I'm just going to whiz through them so fast that when we give, we give joyfully. We don't give through clenched teeth. Um, Paul says God loves a joyful giver. And the word there is a hilarious giver. And it's a joyful thing to give. When we have Commitment Sunday, I only hope and pray that anyone who gives does so willingly and joyfully. If it's like extracting a tooth and you come forward looking really grim, I would say don't come forward. It's not like that. Paul says we give joyfully. Secondly, we give appropriately. You think about it. It's, it's a considered decision. And Paul says to these Corinthians, you're judged not according to what you don't have, but what you do have. And then he says, give extravagantly, because the more you give, the more you will receive, in a sense that the more seed you sow, you, you reap a much bigger harvest. And there is something I, I, I can't understand or explain but there is a dynamic to God's kingdom and it does work like that that the more you entrust to God whether it's your time uh, whether it's anything the more you give to him the more he blesses it to bless more and more and more people it multiplies in the going round but if you and I are, are mean or frugal in what we give to him you will see very little come back and it is a principle, I'm told, of farming. I'm not a farmer, so I wouldn't know. But I have seen it in God's spiritual kingdom. It is how it works. I had a very, very, very close friend who died unexpectedly when he was in his early 40s. And I remember his wife just um, in a throwaway remark. Um, I don't really remember how we got on the topic even. But she said to me, talking about tithing afterwards, Sometimes she just said, we can't afford not to give. 
It was a very interesting perspective. She really understood something of God's principle here. So if you want to see more and more and more of a blessing that God can give you, just read those passages through slowly in your own time, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And you'll see that Paul is in absolutely no doubt in talking to them like I'm talking to you. It really isn't about getting blood out of a stone. It really is getting our lives aligned to the healthy kind of lifestyle that Jesus tells us is best for our lives. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you that you've come to set us free. Thank you that you've come to bring us fullness of life. And thank you that you don't shy away from what we've made hard topics. And we pray that we would receive your word in our hearts. And we pray in obedience we would find the truth of what your word says. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.